Welcome to the Stronger Business Podcast, where we discover how to get stronger together. On this week's episode of the Stronger Business Podcast, we're going to throw it back and listen to Vincent Puglisi. Vincent owns Total Life Freedom, a group that circles around how to live the life you love, how to build your dream life with your business and your entrepreneurial journey, not to serve your business, but how your business serves you. I love what he teaches. I love everything he's a part of. Um, Vincent is just an awesome speaker, delivers awesome content on how to approach your business, how to approach your life, and try to achieve that total life freedom. That's what we're all here for. That's what we're all trying to figure out. How do we have it all? And Vincent helps guide us. This is a throwback when he joined us in person here in Athens, speaking on stage at the Stronger Business Summit. Check out what Vincent has to say. You're going to love this episode. Would it surprise you to know that 61% of Americans, if they got faced with an unexpected $1,000 expense, would have to borrow money to pay for that. At the same time, 86% of Americans graduate from high school. And there's a disconnect there, and I don't know why we're not taught about building money, about building wealth and building businesses in school, as opposed to following along and getting a good job. But the average millionaire has seven streams of income. And it's something to where, when I was a kid, I didn't care about money or income or work. I cared about playing games. And these are my two oldest kids, Andrew and Nolan, playing football in the backyard. And that's what I wanted to do when I was a kid, was play games or be at a game. This is the New York Mets. I come from New York, and watching the New York Mets with 50,000 people was what I loved to do or play games. So I had an obsession when I was little with stadiums. I would learn geography because of the stadiums around the country. And I would look at the maps and I'd learn about it. I would go home and I would build these little mini versions of say stadium with cardboard and, and, and uh, crayons and markers. I would build these little stadiums. When I would go to the games, I'd watch the ushers and I'd watch the grounds crew cleaning up the field and I'd say, that would be amazing to live life by doing a job at something that I love doing, a place that I love to be around. So I obsessed over that until one day I walked downstairs, I was about 15 years old, and I found my dad laying face first on the couch. I'd never seen him like that before. He was always up doing something, reading a book, doing something, and I went to school and I came back the next day, I came back that night, and he was laying on the couch still. And my mom pulled me aside into the kitchen with tears in her eyes and she told me, that his business partner had emptied out the bank accounts, took $135,000 out of the account, left town, and we were instantly broke at 15 years old. A normal life going to complete stress. And all I remember is fighting and fear. I remember my parents going at it. They'd never been like that before. There were lawsuits coming in. There was, they were in construction, so there was hazmat jobs that were not getting finished. Um, we were three weeks away from losing our house, and then I remember talking to my guidance counselor because we were preparing, I think my parents were gonna get divorced, and that's all I obsessed about. I didn't care about school, I didn't care about what they were teaching. Everything was in shambles, and my relationship with my dad, as you can imagine, it really, 
it, it deteriorated. We had no relationship anymore after that. They were so obsessed with that. And I wanted to be anywhere but home. And my parents had taught me a really good work ethic. So I already had a couple of jobs at 16 years old. And I would go to work to get away, and I would go to school to get away, but I wound up hanging out with the wrong crowd. I didn't care about school anymore. And I wound up becoming the wrong crowd and getting into a lot of trouble. Um, so I wound up working for a place called Record World. If anybody remembers Record World way back, they used to sell tapes and CDs and cassettes. And I would steal from there. And I would steal tapes from there, and I would give it to my friends until one day they found out and I got handcuffed, and in front of all my coworkers, got let out to a police car, was arrested. But I didn't learn my lesson from there. I barely graduated from high school. I found out in the last day of high school that I was even gonna graduate. Um, went to community college, dropped out of five majors at community college, not even a real college. And I wound up getting a job at a place called Dairy Barn. There's a drive-through convenience store in New York. And I didn't learn my lesson from the past. And I wound up, by accident, overcharging one of the customers. It happened by accident. I was like, oh, that was 50 cents. And then my coworker did the same thing. We're a bunch of stupid kids. I wound up doing a dollar and then $2. And we paid for lunch. And bad habits are just like good habits. If you increase them, they get better, whether they're bad or good. So within a couple of months, I was making $100 a night as a 17-year-old overcharging customers. And my, I have to say, my list of victims was pretty impressive, because we grew up in an affluent area with no money. Some of the people that I overcharged, Howard Stern, Shock Jock, if you know who he is, Billy Joel, the musician, multiple members of the New York City Police Department, just for the challenge of it, and even members of my favorite team, the New York Mets. And this all changed one night when I was in bed, I was 22 years old, and I woke up from a nightmare in a dead sweat. And there was a woman that looked just like this. She was a customer at Dairy Barn. And a couple of times I had overcharged her. And in my nightmare, she was there staring at me like this. And she said, I got you. I finally got you. And I just jumped up. And I said something that I hadn't asked in the five years before that I should have. What am I doing with my life? And I went downstairs, I sat at the kitchen table, I had moved back in with my parents, and my dad came downstairs after an hour of me just sitting there wondering what in the world was going on. All these people I went to school with had graduated college already, and I'm a thief at a convenience store. And I said, what am I doing with my life? And my dad came downstairs, and I told him what I was struggling with, and he didn't even look at me. I thought he was mad. He went to get a glass of water, and he basically said, well, you love sports, you love traveling, you like taking pictures, why don't you become a sports photographer? And he didn't even look at me. He turned around, went upstairs to bed, and I sat there and I was like, a sports photographer, is that even a, is that even a job? Like, I didn't know there was a job. Nobody in school told me that was a job. If they would have told me in school it was a job, I would have tried. I would have cared. I would have, instead of being the worst student in high school, I would have probably been the best, because I would have been going after something that I loved doing. So the next morning I woke up and I looked up the newspaper and I saw this picture on the back page. I had seen it every day of my childhood but I never paid attention to it. I saw the name underneath it and I saw the affiliation. I said, this is this guy's job. He gets paid to go to these games and be next to the state, next to the athletes and, and get paid for it. So I took the stolen money that I had had 
and I pulled it out of my drawer and I went and I bought a camera and two lenses and I quit stealing and I quit Dairy Barn. And I went all in. For the first time in my life, I had a passion and I had interest and I had a mission to do something. So I bought this camera and I went five nights a week. I took and I bought tickets to either a Mets game or a Yankees game. And I would go from the upper deck and I would try to take pictures to become a photographer, to do this for a living. But I was too far away. My camera wasn't good enough. So I was still sneaky. So I paid attention. I watched the ushers and the security guards at Shea Stadium. And they had this thing where in between innings they would walk down to the field and they would turn around, they'd watch the crowd to make sure nobody did anything wrong. And then they'd walk back up. So I was like, okay. So I stood behind them right before the inning ended. And when they started walking down, I walked down right behind them. And I went about three quarters down, and then I would sit down in an empty seat. They would look around, and then they would walk back up. And as soon as they passed me, I'd scoot out. And every game, I'd be in the front row or the second row within an inning or two. And this became my new school. I never liked school for 16 years, but this was the school that I wanted to go to. I was right behind all the photographers. So every night, I would ask them questions. What kind of camera do you use? What kind of film do you use? Who do you work for? How much money do you make? I would, every night, I would ask questions. I would take notes. I would see their pictures in the newspaper, and I would bring it in, and I would ask them how they did it. And there was this one guy, Paul Bearswell, was an amazing photographer. He, did, he had a picture of a no-hitter one time. And instead of doing this typical picture, he did a really wide-angle lens. You could see the whole scoreboard. And I said, if I ever get there, I want to make a picture like that for my portfolio. And about three months later, I'm at Yankee Stadium, and one of my favorite players, Dwight Gooden, is pitching a no-hitter. And I snuck down to the front row. I shot a picture. And it was the picture that I always envisioned with him pitching the last pitch and all the zeros on the scoreboard. And then I got a picture of him celebrating. And the next night, I brought in the print, and I showed it to Paul. And he said, you can do this. And all I needed to hear was that, you can do this. And I booked a ticket the next week to fly to Chicago because I, I, need, I need to go bigger than this. I need to go to different stadiums around the country. I had very little money, so I stayed in these little youth hostels, $8 a night in the second story of a barn, literally sleeping on hay so I can go do this. And I drove around to eight different stadiums, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Chicago, Nashville, up to St. Louis, into Milwaukee. And then on the last night, the Green Bay Packers were playing in Lambeau Field, and it's a historic stadium that I really wanted to go to. So I went to it, I did my whole thing, I got a ticket, snuck down to the front row, and when I was in the front row, there was a guy walking by, and he stopped me, he said, hey, are you taking pictures? I said, I, I am tonight, you know, from the stands. He said, listen, I work for NFL Films. I'm, my name is Jim Jordan. And I'm like, NFL Films? Like, that's like the dream job. They, they do everything with the NFL. He said, my assistant didn't show up, and I just need somebody to change my film for me. He said, will you do that? I said, absolutely. So he opens this gate. It's a literal golden gate right in front of me. I didn't even see it. And I'm on the field with a press pass for my dream job for one night and one night only. And I need to make the most of it. And years later, my wife found this. They did a special because the Packers won the Super Bowl that year or the next year. And if you look to the left-hand side, that's me at my first game with a press pass. As you can see, I had a hat on backwards. I was not planning on being part of the media that night, so I kind of looked silly. But that's Brett Favre, their soon-to-be MVP quarterback. That's me to the left. And when they kicked off, I couldn't believe it. I'm on the field, and I've got one chance at this. And in the first quarter, there was a running play. I thought it was a running play. 
And it turned out to be a passing play, but I didn't know where the ball was. And the, the game moved so quick, I couldn't figure it out. And I looked up, and all I saw was an eight and a two of the jersey from Michael Westbrook from Washington heading right at me and hit me full speed, flipped me literally upside down, face first into the grass. And I'm not even joking when I say I, I was pulling dirt out of my mouth to clear it out. And I had taken my first NFL hit, and I lived to tell about it. In the third quarter, I was underneath the goalpost shooting, and Jim Jordan was to my left, and he was waving me over frantically, and I thought I did something wrong. So I ran over to him, and I knelt down, and he goes, wait right here. And then the next play, Brett Favre rolled out through a pass to Dorsey Levins, caught a touchdown right in front of me, and it was, till that moment, the best action picture I had ever taken. And I saw Jim walking away from me, and he turned back and he winked at me. I said, what just happened? So I ran over to him underneath the goalpost. I said, what, what just happened? And he took his headset off, and he said, I have far of might for NFL films. I knew where the play was going to go. I wanted to get you a good shot. And I stood there, and I still remember staring at Lambeau Field and looking all around, and I said, this is what I've got to do. No matter what, this is what I have to do. So I got home and I was completely dedicated. I got an internship for a place called Bruce Bennett Studios. They were the team photographers for the National Hockey League, but I didn't get paid. I didn't care, I was a waiter at night, I'll do whatever I have to do to make this happen. And eventually I'm gonna shoot games for them. But I was a researcher to begin with. I got paid nothing, so my, because of my name, my nickname was The Vintern. I was an intern, so I became The Vintern. So eventually I got hired, and now I'm gonna shoot games. And my nickname changed, I thought it would go away. But my nickname mimicked my salary. Now they called me Vinimum Wage, because that, that was my salary. So I got to shoot National Hockey League games for about a year. From there I got hired for the World Wrestling Federation. If anybody is a wrestling fan from the past, I got to travel with them throughout the, the Attitude Era, all around the country. That's a um, magazine cover that I shot of Shawn Michaels. I got to shoot the Super Bowl. Everything that I've always dreamed of, this is the Super Bowl in New Orleans, and that's London Fletcher from the Rams. And if you see the scoreboard, Rams and Patriots, 0-0, 15 minutes. That's right before kickoff, and I'm on the sideline for my dream assignment. And he walks over to me, looking angry, and he came right towards me, and he kept getting closer and closer. And I'm like, what do I do? Do I move? He came right up to me, face to face, and he said, you're going to sell those pictures on eBay, aren't you? And he took his helmet and he put it on and he ran out to go play in the Super Bowl. And I said, this is just bizarre. So I got to do this. The only downside was the Patriots won the Super Bowl. As they, it was the first one they ever won. They kept winning, ever, winning it ever since then. That wasn't the fun part. But I got to live what I wanted to live. I went back to college to get my, get my degree in journalism. I met my amazing wife there. She's a journalism student. We got hired at a newspaper, a small paper in Indiana. And I got to continue to do what I was doing. This was my dream. I got to photograph my favorite players around the country. I got to be published in my favorite magazine growing up. Sports Illustrated was the magazine that I studied every week as a, as a sports fan. I got to photograph the events that I just watched on television all the time. And it was just unreal. But the, it sounds like a fairy tale until you hear the, the full reality was I got paid $15 an hour to do my dream job, and I'm married, and, we're, and Elizabeth's pregnant, eight months pregnant with our new baby, and she wants to stay home, and I want her to stay home, and we can't afford for her to stay home. Because I had followed my dream so hard, but I didn't pay attention to the money. So, I was fortunate. 
I, we submitted for these awards and I won the biggest award that I could possibly win in my industry, International Sports Photographer of the Year. Biggest award I could possibly win. First, third place was Getty Images, which are the premier sports photographers. Second place is Sydney, Australia. And then little old me, Evansville, Indiana, first place. So we have an, a baby on the way. I've got the biggest award I could possibly win. This is the only chance I'm going to get paid any more money at this newspaper. So I go in for my evaluation, and my boss tells everything, just praises me for all the extra work that I do, the awards that we won, just going above and beyond. And then he took his glasses off and he said, but I can only give you 3%. So I'm making $32,000 a year. I'm going to get a 3% raise. This is the biggest raise I'm probably ever going to get at this newspaper. And I looked at him, I was angry. And I said, you know, 3% of your salary might be something, but 3% of nothing is still nothing. And I got up and I walked, and I still remember the door frame, and I stood underneath the door frame. And I said, it's over. I said, I can't keep doing this. And I looked out in the newsroom and I saw the 40-year-olds and the 50-year-olds and the 60-year-olds. And I remember the conversations that they used to have, but I never paid attention. They couldn't pay for their kid's college. They couldn't pay for their kid's wedding. They always struggled going out to dinner. They never went on vacation. They had given everything they could possibly give to this industry that they loved, and the industry treated them like garbage. And I said, it's over. So I left. Instead of shooting a picture, I drove home to call my dad. Because my dad had his own business. He had gotten back on his feet. He was doing great. They had paid off their house. And I just called him to see if I could work for him. Maybe I could make a couple extra dollars to pay for diapers and formula. That's all I wanted. And I called my dad and I said, hey, I told him what happened. And I said, hey, can I work for you? And my dad said, no. And I said, my goodness, this is like the worst day ever. Like even my dad's rejecting me. Like I'm, I get a 3% raise and my dad says no. And then he said something that changed my life. He said, you have a skill, but you're not using it correctly. He said, you have a skill, but you're not using it correctly. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you've become a really good photographer. You've worked really hard over the last six, seven years, but you're settling. You're settling for $32,000 a year and benefits. You can go shoot weddings. You could show, shoot commercial work. You could shoot um, corporate work. You could, do, you could write a book. You can teach on this. You could do anything you want. You have no income limit. You can control your time, but you're settling. And that hit me harder than Michael Westbrook did in Green Bay. I was just floored. And I called my wife, and I did what any really smart husband does when they have a wife that's eight months pregnant. I said, we're starting a business. And she didn't file divorce papers. She said, let's do it. But the problem was, I knew nothing about business. I was never taught about business. Nothing in school taught me about business. I was taught to get a job and do what you want to do that way. But a business? So what do we do? So I have to figure this out. So we're like, what are we going to do? So we knew the, the best thing you can do when you're starting a business, if you're in here and you're getting ready to start, the best way to make money quickly in business is through a service. You can literally get a power washer tomorrow, like my 15-year-old son did, and make money the next day in business. You can make money quickly, quickly with a service. And we realized the quickest way we could make money was also through a service, a service I didn't want to do, but wedding photography made a whole lot of sense. We have the same equipment, we have the same skills, it's the same moments. The problem was I was an arrogant journalist 
who didn't want to shoot weddings. It was too good for me to shoot weddings because we all looked down on that thing. So it's like, oh, we're going to do weddings. And I dragged my feet on it for two weeks. And I complained to my wife, I don't want to be a wedding photographer. That's cheesy. And she said, we're going to do what we have to do until we can do what we want to do. And I said, there you go. So I'm like, I got to learn about business. I don't know anything about it. So I went to Barnes and Noble. Instead of working extra for the newspaper, I went to Barnes and Noble to read books. I was the original quiet quitter. I know that's the new, a new term, but I was like the original. I quiet quit my job because I'm not putting any more time. I'll do the work you need me to do, but I need to figure something else out. So I would read books. And I read a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Anybody here ever read that book? All right. There's a lot of great takeaways, but there was one. Actually, there was two, and Chad's in the room, so I'll mention it. The first one was about taxes. And if you want to bore me to tears, talk about taxes, except when I talk to Chad, or read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And he talked about the difference between the people that were rich and the people that were poor. And the people that were rich owned businesses, and the people that were poor were employees. And that hurt. That hit hard. Because the rich, the employees, the entrepreneurs make money, they get to reduce their income with legal taxable income. How do we say it, Chad? Like, reduce our taxable income expenses. Deductions. We're reducing our taxable income, and then we get to keep all the rest. When you're an employee, as I was, you make money, they take taxes out right away, and then you get, they take out of everything, and then you get to keep what's left. Right there, I saw $20,000 from the year before that we could have had that we didn't have. The other thing that he talked about that really blew my mind was he said that the rich don't work for money. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. I've always worked for money. Everything I've ever done, I've worked and made money. And then I realized I'm not rich. So that makes sense. So the rich don't work for money, but what do they do? The rich create money. And I did not understand what he meant by it. And as I read and I thought about it, this is such a different mindset from anything I was ever taught. They create money. They create services to provide. They create businesses. They create products. They create things out of thin air to make money. And right then, we said, I said to myself, I knew why school fa I knew school failed me. I failed school. But now I knew why. Because they never taught me any of this stuff. And I didn't understand why that. So we went all in with that. Let me see if we're there. So we had to learn there's a process to this whole thing. How many people are first-year business owners here? Okay, we've got some. So how many people have businesses right now? All right. So this might be relatable. We figured out there was a process to this, and this went down the list. It was a kind of a three-step process. And year one was the same from our first business to everything since then. Year one equals pain. And don't let anybody tell you differently. If you can skirt that, good for you. But most people don't. It's painful. You will work too hard. You will make not enough money. You will not get the respect you want. You will not get the referrals that you want. You will make tons of mistakes. All of my mistakes have been done in the first year of every business we've ever done. And you will get incredibly frustrated. And most people quit because it's too hard. But if you can make it through the first year, everything else it's easier. In our first year, we landed our biggest wedding client. It was $3,500 for one wedding. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot right now, but in 2005, in our financial situation, it was a lot. It was literally almost 
a month's salary take home from my wife and I at the newspaper in one day. So I did everything I could to get this client. We made the contract really good. $250 deposit. That's all you got to put down to book us. We just want to get it booked. The rest of the money is due two months before the wedding or a week before the wedding. Got our first client. She signed it. About seven weeks before the wedding, I was like, I, better, I gotta talk to the mom. We gotta figure out the details. And I called her and I said, hey, you know, you know, we have to figure out the details. You know, the, the, the next check is due. And she goes, oh, I forgot to call you. My nephew's a photographer and he decided he wanted to give my daughter a gift, a free gift to shoot the wedding for free for her. So we're not gonna need you. And I said, okay, but we have a contract. And she said, I don't care. And she hung up the phone. Pain. First year is pain. So the second year, oh, this is what I wanted to ask you. When people do this, go through this all the time, I ask them, would you trade a year of pain for a lifetime of freedom? And that's the question that we kept going through. Are we going to go through this pain? We teach this all the time. Would you trade that year of pain? Because if you can get through it and you could have the freedom you want for the rest of your life, would you go through that pain? And what we learned in the second year was balance. We're still wobbly. We're still making mistakes, still getting hit left and right. But we're a little more balanced. We're making a little bit more money. It's not great, but it's better. And we called it the year of work. And I would always recommend when you're starting a business to dedicate yourself and go all in on it because too many people spread themselves too thin, too thin and don't go all in. So we went all in. We called it the year of work. I was still working full time at the newspaper. We had an infant. We had another baby on the way. We had 39 weddings booked and a bunch of corporate work. The first wedding was January 3rd. The last wedding was December 30th. And we went all in. But you start figuring things out when you do this. And we figured out that our clientele wanted something different than what a lot of the people were giving. But they didn't know it. So what we learned is we came into a world as journalists where there was a lot of portrait photographers. And they would show up right before the bride would get dressed. And they would go right through the first dance. If you've been to a wedding, they cut the cake, they turn the lights down, there's some crazy dancing that starts for about three hours, and they would stay for about three or four songs, and then the photographers would leave. Everything looks the same, they told all the clients. After that, you don't need us. And we said, no way, no way. We're telling a full story of your day from the start to finish. We will be there until the last dance because this is your wedding and this is a story. And we would do this. And all of a sudden we realized the pictures at the end of the night were some of the most fun pictures ever, and none of these photographs, none of these photographers were shooting it. And they sold themselves on that. So we came up with a thing called the last hour. So okay, we got a little bit of balance. We're gonna kind of stick it to our competition that's really kind of not being honest with everybody because they wanted to go home and watch television at nine o'clock at night. So we put up the last hour and we told our clients about this. You need and they were like, we don't need you at the end. I said, no, well, look at this. Look at what happens in the last hour. You get some really awesome moments. I didn't shoot this. My wife shot this. I wasn't in the women's bathroom. So funny moments. Jump roping with no jump rope on the dance floor. Just cool lighting situations that we could play around with because we can experiment. Emotion from these family members that they're never going to get if they don't get this captured right here. Air guitar on the floor. Surrounding the bride and groom on the last dance. Fireworks. Now you're going to tell me none of these pictures matter? And all of a sudden we started booking like crazy. Everybody in the town started talking about us when they were looking for weddings. 
when the lights would go down at the wedding, the mother of the bride would see us and she would give us this huge hug. I can't believe you're still here. The bridesmaids who had gotten married were like, I wish we would have hired you. Our photographer left at nine o'clock. And the bridesmaids that weren't married all hired us. And we booked more weddings on the dance floor of those weddings than at any other part with our business, figuring out the balance. So now our goal is to pay off our house. So we're taking all this business money and we're paying all our debt, all our house. We wanted freedom. That's what we wanted more than anything. So year three, when you do this, pain and then balance and then freedom. Your prices go way up. Your time commitment goes way down. You start figuring things out a lot quicker and you have opportunities to do things you've never done when you're really stressed. We got to the point where the average in the third year was about $4,400 a wedding. It took me 46 days at the newspaper to bring home $4,400. What can you do when you have 45 extra days to do whatever you want? We had fun with it. We built our business. I spent a lot of time with our kids. They were five and three. We went for walks every day in the park. There was one day, I'll never forget, we were, me and Andrew were feeding fish at the park, and he said, Dad, what day is today? I said, I don't know. I didn't know what day it was. It didn't matter. I knew Saturdays, 25 days a year, I'll be shooting a wedding. The rest of the time, I could do whatever I want. Freedom. That's exactly what we wanted. The interesting part about it is, I got paid $32,000 a year with the same skills and the same knowledge, with a different perspective. We turned everything around. Same equipment, same everything. What's the downside? I'll tell you the downside to this. Freedom, a lot of times, brings complacency. And that's what we got. It got very easy. I worked 20 days a year. I did whatever I wanted. And, it was, and it, we didn't grow upon it. We didn't do anything else. We were wedding photographers. And then all of a sudden, one day, one day I was like, I had this pit in my stomach. Because when you get the freedom and you get the time, you start to really question who you are. It's not about money. It's not about time anymore. It's about what am I doing and what impact am I making? And I said to myself, am I, really, am I a wedding photographer? Is this who I am? The wedding photography was to get me from the newspaper to out of there to freedom. But I'm now starting to settle for being a wedding photographer and not realizing I know there's more to what I want to do than this. This got us the money. And it's a really difficult spot because a lot of people in jobs are like that. You get paid really well. It's taking care of your family. But is it really the work that you want to do? So I started studying business. What am I going to do? I know there's more to this than weddings. Who's, who's familiar with the 80-20 rule? Right. It, it's, it's, it is the thing that will get you freedom and balance in your business quicker than anything. 80% of problems come from 20% of clients. When you have freedom and you're not stressed about money, you don't have to work with problem clients. When you're in pain and you're starting, you're going to work with some doozies. And we worked with some, no doubt. 80% of your successes come from 20% of your ideas. 80% of inspiration comes from 20% of your friends. You think about the people you hang around with, the people that you get to know and you spend time with. You, you are the, as Jim Rohn said, you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. When you get the 80-20 rule, when you figure this out, you get freedom like you couldn't imagine. And it's not like when you're doing something like wedding photography that a pandemic can't come along and shut down everything you do, which we didn't deal with at that point, but I started to realize we were very vulnerable. 
we're very, we had one income stream, even though we thought we had multiple clients, but one income stream. And I started realizing we're going down the same path we did before with our job, because if I break my arm or a pandemic comes along, all of our income is wiped out. So we started studying business and started studying the average millionaire has multiple income streams, but we didn't have that. So I started figuring out what exactly do I want to do? Who is in this spot right now is trying to figure out what they want to do? Okay, awesome, awesome. So we had to go through this. There wasn't a money concern, there wasn't a time concern, and I had to figure out what exactly do I want to do? So I was at a wedding, and I was photographing the wedding, and it was with this DJ, it was a great DJ. And he was awesome at the DJ side, but he was terrible at the business side. If you know artists, a lot of artists are great at their art, but they're terrible at the business side of it. So I started talking to him at dinner, in between the ceremony and the reception. And I'm coaching him on his business. And at the end of it, he was like, you just changed my business. I said, that's what I was hoping would happen. And he walked out, and he went to go to start the music up for the reception. And the first time in my photography career, I was like, I don't want to go out there. I want to sit in here and keep doing what he's doing. So that night, same night at the wedding, some drunk guy, starts messing around with the DJ, literally knocks over part of his DJ stand. Then tries starting a fight with him, and I went to help him, try to start a fight with me. I went home to Elizabeth, and I said, I am done photographing drunk people dancing at 10.30 at night. I'm done. And she said, what are we gonna do? And I said, that hour I spent with that guy, helping him with his business, if I could do that, if I could do that for a living, my goodness, that would be unbelievable. So, but I started realizing after all the experiences from the past, doing that didn't require one income stream. There was multiple things we can do. I was talking about writing a book. There's coaching. There's membership sites. There's all these different things that this one thing can do. And now we start growing in terms of building a business. So I was coaching one of my clients and I was at the airport. I was going to fly to, I think it was the AFC Championship game in New England. And I saw this plane as my client was talking about the four different things that he's doing. And he's completely stressed out. And he wants to do video production here, and he wants to do coaching here, and he wants... And I said, Dan, I said, I'm looking at this plane out of the window, and I'm watching them load up the food, I'm watching the people get onto the plane, and I'm watching them clean the windshield and fill up the tires, spending all their time on this one plane. It's taking a lot of time. But eventually this plane's gonna taxi down the runway, it's gonna lift off. It's going to go into the air. It's going to require very little energy once it goes up in the air. Can you imagine if they brought four planes over to that gate, and in one plane they start loading passengers, and the other one they start putting food on it, and the third plane they're filling up the tires and washing the windshields, and the second one they're bringing more people onto it. What would happen? What would happen? The food would spoil. The people would get frustrated. They wouldn't go anywhere. The employees would be overworked and they go out of business. So that's exactly how you're running your business. Same exact way, and that's how so many entrepreneurs run their business. ADHD entrepreneurs like me, multiple ideas, always want to do something new, and they can't stick with one thing very long. I don't know why it's doing that right there, but I got into a mastermind with a guy named John Lee Dumas. I'm not sure if anybody's ever heard Entrepreneurs on Fire, the podcast, and I was in a mastermind with him, and he would say all the time, if you can read that, focus. Follow one course until success. And so many people 
struggle with this part of it because we want to do multiple things. And that's when I came up with, instead of trying to have so many different businesses with so many different income streams, can I take one idea and turn it into multiple income streams? So I coached for two years. It's what I did. It's what I obsessed over. I focused on it. I wanted to become the best I could at it. But while I was doing that, I started realizing, well, there's a book in here somewhere. I want to write a book. So this idea for Freelance to Freedom came up, and I wrote the book, but I didn't want to publish it because I was insecure. I was like, who am I to publish a book? And a friend of mine said to me, he goes, listen, your story is inspiring. It's going to help people. This is not about you. You have an obligation to publish this book. And I hope you guys hear that because him telling me I had an obligation changed it away from being a me-focused thing to an others-focused thing. It wasn't about me and embarrassing myself and not being good enough. It was about putting out a message that's going to help other people. So the idea of turning one income stream into multiple, one idea into multiple income streams, I realized there was a process that we did with the other businesses that we had built that worked, but there was one part that was missing. And the first part is to obsess. And a lot of people will tell you not to do this. You have, you have to have multiple income streams. But no, that airline obsessed over that one flight. They didn't think about all the other things on the log. They obsessed over that one flight. Same thing with our business. We did the same thing with coaching, with photography. The second thing is stabilize. Because after you obsess, you need to relax. You need to see what things are, how things are going. Then you optimize. That's when you're bringing the 80-20 rule into That's when you go, we can charge more money, work less time, be more efficient, delegate, do whatever you need to do to optimize your business. See, this is what we did with the first couple of businesses we started. But then we stopped right there. And there's one more part to it. And this is how you do it. You build upon. When you do that, now you have the structure down, it takes less time to do, you're making more money, you have freedom, and now what's the next thing we can build off of this? So I said, okay, we've got the coaching thing down, it's going well, now I'm gonna obsess on the book. I'm not gonna mess around with this, we're gonna get a book published. A lot of people will tell me, oh, I can't do what I wanna do that I'm interested in because I can't make money from it. And I'm here to tell you, if I can do this in all these different ways, if you have an interest in it, you can make income from it. Let me tell you a story really quickly. This woman, I don't, I've never even met her. She has a community, an online community for doodlers. Not professional doodlers, amateur If Right here, if you're doodling, you could join her community for $5. She has thousands of people in her community. Think about the income that comes from that. If you have an interest in something, you can build an income around it. So before I quick on the slides, so what happened was I joined a mastermind and there was this guy named Kyle Schultz and he has an online community helping parents take better pictures of their kids. And I was like, so I met him at this thing and he, and he told about his business and how successful it was. And he told the story, then I went up and I told my story of my career. And I walked back to my seat and I looked at him and I said, I got an idea. And he looked at me and he said, yes. I said, you don't even know what I'm going to say. He said, go ahead, tell me. Tell me what you're going to say. And I said, we should team up and do a course, for sports photography course for your people on how to take better pictures of their kids playing sports. So that's exactly what I was thinking. So we sat down together. We collaborated. We wrote a course. We recorded a course. We put the course out. And it made $32,000 in one day. That's what it, I used to make in one year at the newspaper. 
but one course made $32,000 in one day. Same exact knowledge that it took me to shoot all those pictures, same exact stuff, the stuff I would use in my mind to take the pictures, recording it for a course, made $32,000. Same knowledge, different application. But I knew I did not want to teach sports photography. That was not my path to where I wanted to go to. But I knew I wanted to learn what Kyle had learned. He had built a membership that has 1,000 people in it at $10 a month. He had built courses. He has freedom and multiple income streams that he wanted to do. So I took that and I realized that recurring income, they say, they say um, what is the phrase, that uh, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. I believe that. But I think recurring income is the ninth wonder. Because when you start getting recurring income, when you look at your phone and in the morning there's three or four or five payments coming in before you even get started, it changes the way that you work. You don't work for money anymore. You create things that earn income. And this gives you the freedom to create new income streams around it. So the book was published. This is our youngest kid, Dylan. Um, and uh, he was more excited about the book launch than I was. So when the book launched, I got really great advice from a, from a mentor that I didn't realize, um, I don't remember what his name was, I wish I would, but he said to me, the money doesn't come from selling the book, the money comes from selling what's inside of the book. And when I took that information, I realized we can take this and spread it out into so many different ways of income instead of trying to sell a $15 book. That's when I realized, I was always focused on games when I was a kid. Money. I realized, is a game. And when you are stressed out, when you don't have time, you don't see it that way. Money is a stress. But money is a game just like my Mets, my favorite baseball team, the New York Mets. Money, it was, a, it was all a game that they played. They, I'll tell you a quick story about this. The, in New York in the 1950s, there were three baseball teams. There was the Yankees, the Brooklyn Dodgers, the San Francisco Giants. But in 1957, the Giants and the Dodgers both moved to California left a gaping hole. There was a need to be filled. And the New York Mets owners, the new owners, realized this, we could put a team here. But they wanted to capture the fan base that had left. So they did something smart that most people don't know about. They took the orange from the Giants and the blue from the Dodgers, and they put it together to make a logo for the New York Mets. They immediately captured the attention of all these people that wanted something. They didn't build a brand new stadium. So many entrepreneurs right away, I need to have the, most, the, the greatest website. I need to have all these things in place. No, you don't when you start. There's things in place already. The Polo Grounds, which is a crappy stadium. It wasn't even built for baseball, but it was ready to go for them to play in until they built their stadium. It wasn't very complicated the way they built the team. There were two ticket prices on their first season, $3.50 and $2.50. Now, after all these years, they've won one, one World Series since then. Seven years later, they've won the World Series. They've won one more since then. But now they have a new stadium with 45 different ticket prices, and they were just sold for $2.4 billion, starting from two ticket prices to begin with. And what I figured out in this whole way, in all those years of watching sports and following it, the sports industry had it figured out. They had it figured out how you could take one idea and create multiple income streams from it. And we decided to follow along and learn from it and study it. What they do is this, and everybody can emulate this for their own business. They give it away for free. 
If you think about it, they put all the games on the radio for free for you to listen to. By the way, they make good advertising money from it, even though they give it away for free. They put it on television, a lot of times for free, a few dollars a month for subscription. That's a way to start out. But now people are listening to it on the radio, they're watching on television, they're becoming fans without even buying anything. They're becoming fans of theirs. But then they go, okay, I want to go to a game. It sounds awesome on the radio. I'm going to sit in the upper deck. I'll buy a cheap seat for 20 bucks. Okay, wait a second. What is going on down there? That guy's catching a foul ball. At least he's trying to catch a foul ball. How much are those tickets? It was like 60 bucks. It's a mezzanine. Okay, all right. They're in the mezzanine. Then they look down and go, wait, those players get to slap hands? The, the fans get to slap hands with the players? They get to hug the players as they're coming off the field? How much are those tickets? Well, it was like 150 bucks. So as they're sitting down, they go, what's that? It's a pool. We're in Miami, there's a pool in the stadium. There's luxury boxes where they're hanging out with celebrities and are eating all this amazing food. How much is that? Well, those things are like $1,000. Okay, well now you got certain parts of your clientele and everybody will have this, where they have money to spend and they're willing to spend it. They're not looking for upper deck tickets, they're looking for a different experience. So what happens? Well, they got the old timer players that go to Florida and you can spend $5,000 and you can go to fantasy camp with the players that used to watch on television and you could spend big money for that. And then they have merchandise, they've got food, they've got advertisements, parking, etc. They're all playing one game. Unlimited, uncle, unlimited income stream. So we followed this, we watched this, and so we said, how do we build it the way that they built it? And we did the same exact thing. We put out a blog and a newsletter, we do interviews for free, we do a podcast for free. It's all content to build trust and to build fan base. We have, starting next month, a paid newsletter that's $9 a month, an upper-level seat where we give a course every week on how to build multiple income streams from one idea. That's not even out yet. I apologize. There's a content-only membership that's $25 a month. There's an online community, MJ is a part of our community, where we meet every week, two calls a week, and we have an online community of entrepreneurs and business owners that work together to help each other create a life of freedom through their business. If you want more access, there's a mastermind. That's $500 a month. It's 10 entrepreneurs a week that I leave for two hours. One-on-one -on -one coaching. On down the line, we're getting closer to the field. We do live retreats, speaking, in-person coaching. You could fly to our house, and for two days or one day, I will coach you on the business. These are all things around one idea, and the same thing, there's affiliates, advertising, products, courses, all from doing one idea. And the crazy part is, all this requires a ton of less time than it used to take me to work at a $15 an hour job. So, money used, almost destroyed our family. Money problems almost destroyed our family. My dad and I had a strained relationship for 30 years because of what went on when I was a teenager. But through all the experiences that he had, he taught me the lessons to help me do what he wasn't able to do. And because of that, we get to live a life that he didn't get to bring for us. But now it gets to come full circle. So the idea is, how do you do this? How do you take what you do and create multiple income streams from it? Because your idea, your passion, how you can help people is too important to play on a small stadium where other people aren't watching. I would love to see you take your idea 
build multiple income streams from it, build the stadium around it, help the people, because we have such joy in the people that we help and change in their lives, and we get to create a life of freedom for ourselves to that as well. So the question for you that I want to ask, and it's a very simple question, I asked this earlier, and I mentioned it a few times. Oh, I apologize, I messed up. The one reason why we do this, and it's not, people a lot of times they will say, it's about luxury, they want, they want luxury items or they want wealth or whatever. It's not about wealth for me. I'm really not a money person. This is the nicest you're ever gonna see me dress. I don't really care, it's not a big deal to me. I want options. I want the ability to spend time with my kids whenever I want. I want the ability to eliminate work that I don't wanna do, not work with clients who are trouble. In the very beginning, we always had to work with clients that were trouble. I want options to create when I, have, when I feel creative. I, if I wanna write a book, I want the time to do it. If I wanna create a course, I wanna be able to do the work that I love to do, and I see so many people struggle with that. So the question I have for you, and I'd really love to leave you with this and think about this, how you can do it, is what skills aren't you using correctly? And before my dad said that to me, before he said it to me that one day, he said something to me that really changed me. He said, I've been trying to tell you this for years, but you haven't listened. So I hope you listen now. And I did listen. So I'm hoping you listen now because this really is something that could really catapult you to create a life of freedom for yourself, for your family, and for your clients. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Stronger Business Podcast. We're excited to come to you again next week with more tools and tactics to help you get stronger in your business and in your life. Check us out on Instagram at Stronger Business or follow us uh, on our website at StrongerBusiness.com. Have an awesome rest of your day and we'll see you next week.